0: This is Using the Whole Whale, a podcast that brings you stories of data and technology in the nonprofit world. My name is George Weiner, your host and the chief whaler of wholewhale.com. Thanks for joining us.
1: Hey, everybody. My name is Carisha Martinez, one of the digital advertising whalers here at Whole Whale. And today on the podcast, we have Brady Josephson, who is the managing director of Next After Institute, Um, which is an online fundraising research lab. Hey, Brady, how are you doing?
0: Good, thanks, how are you?
1: I'm good, thanks for asking. Um, Today we'll be talking about nonprofit email cultivation. Uh, Here at Whole emails are like everything. We can get an email, we're good to go. So it's really exciting to have you here to talk more about your study that you've done with multiple nonprofits, very extensive, and can be found on your website as well.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to be here. We're uh, big fans of email as well, that's why we wanted to look into it more. (laughs)
1: Cool. So, can you tell me a little bit more about your study? Uh, Name the state of nonprofit email cultivation. How do you do it and why do you think the study was important and necessary?
0: Yeah, sure. So, um, as you mentioned, we're we're a research lab. So, we exist to do research and we do two main types. So, on the one side, we do kind of rigorous A-B tests and experimentation with nonprofit clients or nonprofits can submit their own A-B tests And then we'll analyze those and try to figure out what's working, you know, uh, what kind of emails are people responding to, what leads to conversions, and we'll kind of comb through those and use those to teach and train from. So that's one type of research. The other type is this type, where we do kind of like mystery donor, mystery shopper type studies, where we'll create fake personas, and we'll go out and make donations, or in this case, subscribe to emails and make donations, and then we'll track the experience. And what we're trying to figure out is, what is it like to actually be on the other side? What is it like to be a donor? having an understanding of uh, kind of the donor's viewpoint is paramount to being a good digital marketer, developing the sense of empathy. So we think by kind of putting ourselves in their shoes, we can develop a sense of empathy of what it's like, but then also we see all these different trends and what organizations are doing or not doing And then we try to address those gaps where we see, you know, this is what's working, but no one's doing this. Well, let's spend time talking about that because that's what seems to be most important for nonprofits. So that's what this one was about. We've done a lot of research on the acquisition side. How do you get emails? How do you maybe even get donations? But very little research by us or even a lot of other people is really looking at, well, what happens after you make a gift or what happens after someone subscribes to email? It's harder to do research, uh, it's more complicated, which is why a lot of people don't do it. But we said, man, we've talked so much about how to get emails, we haven't talked nearly enough about what to do once emails are actually acquired through a donation or, or an email sign up. So that's really what we wanted to look at here is how were email subscribers and donors who gave their email, how were they treated or communicated with within the first 45 days? Yeah. It's a very, very you know, critical time period. Someone just said, I wanna get your news or I just believe in your cause enough to give you my money. There's this ripe opportunity to engage and people are more likely to give again and engage. So what are organizations doing in that time period? That's what we wanted to look at.
1: Mm. And I'm interested in this 45 days. Like, where did you get 45 days from?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. So two things. One, um, research either by us or Classy actually did in uh, look at uh, repeat donor behavior in their last uh, State of Modern Philanthropy. And what they found is other than kind of the annual gift or the the kind of 365-day mark for someone's one-time gift, they're more likely to make a second gift in that first two, three, four-week window. Mm -hmm. And for recurring donors, they're actually more likely in that first two, three, four weeks than any other time the rest of the year to upgrade from a one-time to a recurring gift. So some t- somewhat counterintuitive thinking about, oh, well, people just gave, let's leave them alone or, you know, yeah. let's, let's not engage. But it's actually the opposite. Is like they're engaged. This is the peak of their engagement. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so how can you engage in this time period? So that's, that's part of it. So that's why we wanted to look at kind of 30 days. But we know a lot of organizations are on kind of monthly calendars, right? We send one email a month and we do this. So we said, if we only do 30 days, depending on when we sign up or when we give, we actually might miss that window just kind of by accident. So we extended it to 45 days to make sure we could catch kind of a full cycle. So that's kind of where the the 45 days came from. Now we get all those emails now forever. So that's where we'll do like year end analysis or we'll look at the whole year. But this study only looked at the first 45 days.
1: Cool. So what were some of the mistakes that you found nonprofits making other than this 45 day kind of gap in between when donors first gave and uh, later on?
0: Yeah, well, one of the most shocking findings is actually how often forms, sign-up forms or donation forms were just broken or potentially the kind of internal process was broken because we set out trying to do this with 253 nonprofits and we ended up only including 199. And then we actually only had a cohort where we could sign up to get emails, make a donation and get an email back within 45 days. There's only 122 organizations that actually did that which means it was like 48% of the nonprofits that we wanted to include, we could actually include because 20% we couldn't make a donation, 27% we couldn't sign up. And then another X percent wouldn't send us an email in 45 days. So, you know, there's brokenness all over the the place, you know, it could be a broken form, could be a broken tool, could be a broken integration, could be a broken internal process that just moves too slow or someone forgot to upload a list. We don't know exactly what it is, but we know our experience as a donor is, less than half the time were we able to actually get communication within 45 days from the same organization. So something's going wrong. So like we never sought out to find that as a data point, but obviously when that happens, you're like, Oh my gosh, we have to talk about this because this is crazy.
1: Yeah. And why do you think that brokenness is, do you think it's lack of capacity or maybe not enough expertise?
0: Yeah, it's a combination of that. Uh, It's a combination of tool selection, right? People always kind of go for like the cheapest, freest, uh, tool and that's often you know not a great <laughs> those <laughs> tools are most likely to go down and things like that right. um, And there's there's definitely like a, a bit of a lack of knowledge of like how do you connect systems and a lot of people don't know what Zapier is or how APIs work and so mm-hmm. there's definitely some of that but I think the easy fix is just go test your own forms once mm-hmm. a quarter at least twice a year just yeah. go sign up for your own email go make your own donation and just A, C, is it actually working? But B, it's actually surprising. You just go through your own kind of sign up flow and you'd be like, oh my gosh, like, is that what we say? You know, like, do we make them click that many buttons? Like we just, we're so busy. We don't even think about it. And so that's why we do these studies is like, we're kind of trying to do some of the hard work for you, but every organization should test their own forms at least once a quarter.
1: Right. And it seems so rudimentary that you would even just make sure it's working as a double check, but
0: Yeah. And you know what, what's so interesting is like, there's so many interesting conversations right now around online and digital and philanthropy. And, you know, we're talking about AI and donor advised funds and like, there's a lot of cool stuff going on and that's great. We should be talking about that. But the problem that we have often is like the absolute bare minimum on basics are not getting done. So this whole conversation about AI is completely irrelevant when we can't even freaking donate to 20% of nonprofits whose median revenues are 100000000 million. We're not talking about tiny nonprofits that are Mm cash-strapped. We're talking about, generally speaking, larger, quote-unquote, sophisticated organizations. And this is where we're at. And so we have to find this balance between kind of talking about innovation and inspiration and above the market, but we have to be grounded in the reality of where most nonprofits are currently existing and we can't just jump ahead. Like we have to get the basics down. Otherwise the rest doesn't matter. So that's, that was kind of a key finding in this whole thing, right? Of just like signing up, sending emails, like, yeah, it's 2020. And we still have to talk about this stuff, but we do because this is Mm. what's going on.
1: Yeah. I love that. (laughs) So let's talk a little bit more about what exactly email cultivation is. Uh, what was the best email or the best cultivation email that you got from this study?
0: Ooh, that's a, that's a good question. Well, we we analyzed over 2,500 of them, so it's hard to kind of, you know, pick, <laughs> pick out one. And um, I didn't share much about the methodology, but what we did is we actually uploaded all the emails to Mechanical Turk. And okay. so then we had three independent analysts review all the emails and score it. Or market as cultivation, uh, solicitation, or a confirmation. So, confirmation is like, thank you for signing up, here's your tax receipt, just kind of the automated thing. And then a solicitation was if the main thing was an ask, asking us to give, asking us to buy something, any kind of financial ask. And then everything else we categorized as cultivation. So, mm-hmm. newsletters, surveys, blog posts. Anything else that wasn't a confirmation or an ask, we consider cultivation. So it's a pretty broad definition of cultivation. Um, we tried to actually subcategorize them. So like, was this a newsletter or a blog post? Was this, you know, a video or a stewardship article? Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's too hard to actually quantify what is what, you know, the researchers could never agree. And so we're like, that's way too in depth, like, forget <laughs> it. But that was actually one of them, the uh, outcomes was like, it's actually really hard to figure out as an email recipient, What are you trying to communicate to me and what Mm. are you asking me to do? Because sometimes it's like, Hey, we're in the news. Here's what's coming up. You can make a gift. You can volunteer. Here's programs your way. And you're just like, I know that you want to communicate all this stuff to me, but I have no idea what it is I should do and why, you know, just because you throw a bunch of stuff out there in an email doesn't mean I'm going to do it or I understand it. Mm -hmm. So that was actually one of the key points coming out of the study is like, what's the purpose of this email? Right. How do you clearly, you know, make your email about that? And if there's a call to action giving or otherwise be very specific and very clear because so many of the emails that we saw weren't. So a lot of the best examples were just kind of like, if you want me to take a survey and say, thank you so much for signing up to me. We would love to hear more about what you're passionate and interested in to see how we can you know, make your life better. Would you mind taking this five minute survey? Click here to take our survey. Mm-hmm. Great email. You're asking for my opinion. I know why you want me to do it. I know where to do it. I can click it. So whether you're asking for a survey or a gift or volunteer, that kind of format, you know, is the better type of email instead of here's a whole menu of stuff that you can do. And it's really hard for people to choose.
1: Yeah. It's like overload. Like, do you want me to donate? or I can donate. Oh, but what about the survey? Or, oh no, like maybe I should check out their social media.
0: Big time. Yeah. And the biggest thing is, you know, if it's ways to get involved and you have, you know, here's way one, here's way two, here's way three, that's okay. Mm -hmm. Um, Ideally you could still prioritize. There's this concept of decision friction. When people have multiple options that are equally weighted, we all struggle. We don't know. So Mm -hmm. even if you say like, here's the best way to get involved, here's a couple other ways you can we're like helping make that decision for someone. So it actually helps them. So even if you wanted a list, there's ways to do it a little bit better. But the biggest mistake or problem is when it's like um, conflating a, a financial ask with engagement or cultivation emails, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, thank you so much for your donation. Here's how it's making a difference. Would you like to volunteer program? Or here's make a gift. And it's like, well, now I feel asked. And so I feel like I'm being solicited, but it's not a strong ask. It's not the main purpose. And this is why donors often feel over solicited or like they're being Mm -hmm. asked all the time because we have donate buttons in every email, even if it's not about donating. We'll
1: Mm -hmm. casually
0: throw in PS, you can make a gift. And so they constantly feel like they're being asked, but they're just not being asked well. Mm -hmm. So we're saying, why not make your, if this is about news, make it about news. If this is about ask, then make it about the ask. But the more that you blend those two, Mm -hmm. the worse it is for everyone, I think, because donors don't feel honored and respected. They don't really know why they should give. So that's the biggest kind of, quote unquote mistake that that we would see people is mixing kind of cultivation with an ask.
1: Mm. And what would you say to, I guess, smaller nonprofits that have a smaller team and are just trying to send out as many emails as possible and check off as many things as they can without too much lift? Maybe they're thinking we're only sending out one email A month or two emails a month. We need to include as many things in here as possible so that users can click on it as much as possible, or at least have the opportunity to It sounds like what you're saying is kind of going against that general thought idea.
0: Yeah. And there's a few reasons. Right. So uh, if you're a smaller nonprofit, uh, a good open rates, maybe 50% you know for most nonprofits larger an open rate of 50% would they would like bite your hand off you know it's normally <laughs> like 20% but the smaller your list is the more engagement you typically get but mm-hmm. even if you have a 50% open rate it still means half the people aren't opening your email and right. so if you go if you go one email a month and you go two months you know there's a good chance that people are going multiple months without ever actually mm. engaging with your content so one of the reasons for more frequent communication is you're actually spreading out. So they may miss this email, but then they'll get that email. If you put all your eggs in this one email a month basket mm-hmm. and they miss it, they don't, they don't get anything for that whole month. And heaven forbid, they miss two months. Now they're going a whole quarter, right? Without actually getting information. So that's part of it. And two, when we look at like deliverability rates and unsubscribe rates, the biggest factor is uh, silence. Mm-hmm. If people haven't heard from you in a long time and then you kind of pop up or they feel like they haven't heard from you in a long time and then you pop up. It's more likely to get flagged as promotions or they'll tag you as spam or they're unsubscribed Mm -hmm. because they're like, oh, I don't, what is this thing again? I don't, I don't really remember. And they'll delete it. So the more frequent communication, you'll often get a short spike of people that are like, oh, you know, this is too much. And then it curves off and then engagement starts to go up again because people Mm -hmm. get used to your content more regularly and they like it more regularly. So -hmm. what we'd say to smaller nonprofits is like, you're already putting together this, you know, litany of things for them to do. What if you just put that together and try splitting it into two emails instead of one, Mm -hmm. right? Or keep your monthly digest. It's kind of a recap, but maybe send two others. So this one's just about, you know, upcoming events. And then this one's just about volunteer opportunities. And you can reiterate that in your once a month newsletter or something like Mm -hmm. that. Then obviously monitor things like unsubscribe and engagement. But too many people optimize email to avoid unsubscribes. And that's actually not the goal. The, The goal is to optimize for engagement. And as your engagement goes up, your unsubscribe or your deliverability also goes up. It's not just unsubscribe. Right? So the best way to avoid spam and promotions is actually to get more engagement. And mm-hmm. how you do that is generally sending more frequent, better content. So it's a, again, it's a little counterintuitive, but if you kind of step back and think of the emails that you look forward to getting, they're probably not once a month, right? They're probably more frequently. And they're probably more specific and they're really relevant. And so that's the path that we think nonprofits need to go more down towards as opposed to this kind of, you know, once a month newsletter that everyone kind of advocates for. It's a good starting point, but it's not the end point. Right.
1: Yeah. And on the topic of email cultivation as this big umbrella, I'd like to know your or what your study found on welcome series and welcome emails what did you find was best to include or best times of days or how many to send as part of a welcome series?
0: Yeah, it's a really good question again. um, So what we can't do in these mystery donor studies is we don't know what works or not. Right. Mm -hmm. So we're just signing up and we're just categorizing and saying, here's what we Mm received. That's where the experiment side of our research is really useful because we can say, here's what we've done or what organizations have done and what seems to work. So just one caveat, like we don't know what send times are best necessarily from the study. We don't know what welcome series works best from this study. Mm -hmm. What we do know is when we were sent emails, we did look at what days and what times. So we do know when we received emails and we know how many emails we received in the first few days. And we know what can look like a welcome series, but actually there's no way to measure what is actually part of a welcome series. Mm -hmm. You don't know if this email was automated and part of a welcome series or if it was necessarily just, you know, part of their normal cadence. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes it seems obvious, but at scale, when you're looking at, you know, 199 nonprofits and 2,500 emails, it's impossible to actually tag. This is a welcome series for sure. And this isn't. Mm -hmm. So what we did look at is how many emails we received in the first couple days Mm -hmm. to try to look at who's using marketing automation because you would think Mm -hmm. You get something in the first few days, it's an indicator of automation. And on the donor side, there's only 50 non, 15% of nonprofits didn't send some kind of automated thank you or a, a quick mm-hmm. acknowledgement of our gift. Um, so that's still 15% that sent us nothing in the first two days after donating, which is still too high. Like that right. should be you know, a given. Here's at least a receipt. Ideally, it's a receipt and a thank you. And those two, mm-hmm. I think are different things. Just because you give a receipt doesn't mean that it's also a thank you. But on the email subscribers, Side, that number is more like 52%, which mm. means like 48% sent us nothing in the first two days. Um, so it's a good indication that again, is it a form brokenness where the, they sign up on this form and it's not pushing into their email tool perhaps, but whatever's going on, there's not an automated system to say, thank you so much for signing up. And then subsequent mm. communication. So that's where we're doing a benchmark study now. And we did it last year where we asked, do you have a welcome series? And that number is anywhere from, you know, to 80% of nonprofits are telling us, no, they don't have a welcome series specific to donors. So that's a huge area of opportunity, right? Because you can sit down and come up with a three to five email series, which we recommend in seven to 14 days Mm
1: -hmm. and
0: set it up, make it good for email subscribers, make it good for donors. And then it's running, you know, you don't have to click buttons every day. Like that's (laughs) running as people come in all the time and you should review it and revise it, et cetera, but that's a good use of time for even small nonprofits is take time, build this well, set it up, but then it just runs and it's really a great way to engage uh, early subscribers and donors when they're engaged.
1: Yeah, and I think it's so interesting that when you signed up for all of these emails, you didn't really know whether it was a welcome series or whether you were just kind of jumping in at a random time during their email subscription. Was your study able to see what percent of all emails at least included the word welcome?
0: No, I mean, we can. We did, we did an email analysis of, like, extracting all the copy, and then we can mm-hmm. do a text analysis. But same thing. I mean, would you even uh, use the word welcome in every welcome series? Like, no, mm-hmm. the answer is not every time, right? Some people would say they welcome. Some people would say Greetings. So we can't say definitively that they weren't using a welcome series because they didn't use the word welcome. That's an assumption. So this is where the research side actually gets pretty complicated. And yeah. there's a lot of things we'd love to share more about. Like, did they use a welcome series? How many emails were in the welcome series? We'd love to know that. We just have no way to do that in aggregate and on scale. So what yeah. we did do, though, is we looked at a few organizations like Greenpeace and Food for the Hungry that we know do testing and that we know generally do good online work. And we looked at how do they handle the difference between subscriber and donor? And we actually went into detail over the 45 days. Here's the emails a subscriber received. Here's the emails the donor received. Here's what we think is an automated series. And here's how the three different organizations handled it differently, right? Mm -hmm. So one organization, Food for the Hungry, had two totally separate tracks for 45 days, totally different emails. And then they lined up at the very end where we received the same newsletter, whether we were a donor or a subscriber. Mm
1: -hmm. But previously,
0: All the different communications were at different days, different focus, where someone like Greenpeace had very similar cadence. They just personalized and contextualized the email. So we would get an ask on the same day, but to the subscriber, it was asking for a one-time gift. But to us as a one-time donor, it was asking us to upgrade to a recurring gift. So Mm -hmm. they build a similar pattern and cadence and flow, but then they would tweak it and customize and personalize based on subscriber or donor. And then another organization, I think it was uh, Operation Smile, they just removed the donor from communications for i think it was 14 days and then once those 14 days were up uh there was one automated email that we received on day 10 and once that was up then we just went back in and got the exact same emails with no personalization right Mm -hmm. so that's another tactic people will do is while they're in this donor welcome series or whatever might be you don't get any other emails after x days We'll put you back in. So mm-hmm. we could in theory do that analysis on all 199 nonprofits, but you have to go through every single email manually and look at it. And we just didn't have the time and capacity yeah. to do it. But <laughs> we, we use that as like, here's three ways that nonprofits are handling the kind of onboarding um, in terms of their strategies. And we're not saying which one's right or wrong. That's something that organizations have to figure out for themselves, but at least we're showcasing here's what a few organizations Mm -hmm. are doing in terms of their cultivation for these two different types of people.
1: Yeah, and I love that you touched on personalization a little bit because I think that email is the best place to really personalize your message to your donors or just to your regular subscribers. Um, can you talk a little bit more about whether there was any personalization in these emails, whether when you first subscribed or when you first donated, et cetera?
0: Yeah, and again, it varied a lot from organization to organization. You know, mm-hmm. when we'd go in to find examples or we'd go into this deep dive, um, I'd say the vast majority of organizations, and we don't have it as a number, but they would have minor personalization. They would call us. You know brady or jake or susan or loretta or whatever our made up persona was Mm
1: -hmm.
0: um the number of organizations that personalize or contextualize their message based on us being a subscriber or us being a donor is minimal right Mm -hmm. so like greenpeace would be one of the exceptions food for the hungry would be one of the exceptions you know i'd say again this is anecdotal like less than 20 percent i think are taking that type of of strategy Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we're talking about, can we do the basics <clears throat> and personalization isn't necessarily like the basic, but that's where we see it headed as being the basic, you know, okay. the, even the idea of uh, e-blast, like the terms we used, you know, mm-hmm. a mass newsletter and an e-blast and that's just not how it should be. There's no reason why in 2020, we shouldn't be able to say, here's the email that this person gets and this person gets this kind of email and we have the tools and the features to do a lot of that. We shouldn't put too much stock in the data we have because you know people don't always choose the right option and they maybe look at something that they really don't care about and let's not assume, but kind of the personal nature of email, you're right, it's a huge advantage of email, and it's where we see success for our clients and where we see more and more success and where it needs to go for nonprofits. And it's not just based on you know past models of you know, you're a one-time donor or a subscriber, that's okay. But we have the ability now to know. Either this person said, here's what I'm interested in. So now we can give them that content or we can see, oh, they're on, you know, our Uganda project page two weeks in a row. Let's send them an email with an update from our work in Uganda. You know, like those types of things are pretty readily available. You guys have built a tool to help make it easier for people using, you know, like MailChimp and stuff. We use HubSpot a lot, which has it built in, but mm. that stuff's very powerful and it's, it's fairly readily available and we see very few nonprofits doing it.
1: Mm. And why do you think that is just based on your own experience?
0: Yeah. Uh, tool, capacity, knowledge. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the, the things that we try to do a good job at is showing where revenue comes from or how to properly analyze revenue so that people actually feel some pain around it. So when we say, hey, did you know that emails is the, the number one driver of online revenue? A lot of people, yeah, okay, I kind of get that. Well, did you know that just direct mail donors who also get your emails will give more just by getting emails, even if they never give online, which is what our data says. So now if we can basically use data to make the case for why email is so important. Now, hopefully that trickles down to people that are running digital programs to say, we should probably spend a little bit more time and energy on getting these emails for direct mail donors, right? Or sending better emails because it means something. So I think we as a space have done a very poor job of using data to back up our points. Mm -hmm. So then people are like, we should send more email, why? it's like, I don't know, I think we should use more email. Like that's a very difficult (laughs) argument for people to make. Whereas if you have data or we have data and we can share it and use it in concise and useful ways to say here's why you should care about your donation page. Because Mm -hmm. if it's converting at 5%, it means 95% of people are walking away. If you can just get to 10%, it's an extra 5%, which means This X, Y, and Z over the course of a year. Mm -hmm. Like, if if decision makers knew they were losing five thousand dollars a month, I guarantee you they would make changes. Yet it's happening on their donation pages all the time, and no one does anything about it because it's they don't know it. You know, it's not something that they feel or see. Mm -hmm. So I think that all that to say, I think a lot of the tactics and strategies that we use, everyone has to do a better job at saying, here's what's working, and here's the data Mm -hmm. that shows it so that people can invest in things like marketing automation and personalization. Um, And then we shouldn't just assume that that works, right? Just because someone says this is cool, or this is what, you know, this for-profit brand does doesn't necessarily mean we should just buy it and do it. We need to prove this for ourselves. And I think that's a, an overarching thing that we all need to get better at in our space is really how do we use data to justify the decisions and the things that we're doing.
1: So clearly you've done a lot of research and collected a lot of data that's specific to nonprofits. What do you think are three low-lift, high-results actions that nonprofits can take to improve their email cultivation or solicitation?
0: Number one, I already mentioned it, but test your forms. Uh, Again, you can have the coolest welcome series in the world. (laughs) That's doing great, but if your forms are broken and it never actually makes its way out, (laughs) then it's irrelevant. So again, I think that's a low, uh, you know, low time, high benefit kind of thing. And then particularly, if you can try your best to step in the shoes of an average donor and mm-hmm. see things like the language we use and acronyms. Like we use so much insider language that's not accessible to the average donor. So hopefully you can find some of that. But test your forms at the very least to see if it's working. Uh, I also mentioned the, the welcome series. Ideally, it would be kind of here's for an email subscriber. And then here's for a donor. Even more ideal on the email side is if they sign up for your newsletter, they get this, but hopefully you have something more valuable than a newsletter to offer, you know, an ebook or a guide or, you know, an email series, an online course, anything basically other than a newsletter gives you a better chance to get an email sign up. And then you would customize your uh, welcome series a little bit to that. So if I download you know, six ways to make a difference in Uganda, the first thing you say is, thank you so much. Here's you know, six ways to make a difference in Uganda. And then maybe the other emails are the same. But those kind of welcome series, again, the first few emails you send are going to be the most important, open, read, engaged emails to someone you'll ever send. That's mm. what our data is saying compared to industry benchmarks. So take the time to figure out what is it that you want to say and how can you engage when they're engaged. So a donor welcome series, an email welcome series, a great usage of time. Uh, and then I think the th- the third thing is just that concept of if you send one big email split into two smaller ones or three mm-hmm. smaller ones or four smaller ones, um, everything that we kind of know about deliverability rates and engagement over time, which turns into revenue, mm-hmm. uh, says to say in more frequent cultivation communication. So when we do these studies, we we try to line up experiments that test some of the concepts and then we can weave those in. And one of those experiments was what would the impact of sending one additional cultivation email a week be on mm-hmm. revenue? Not directly to that email, but after a three-month period. Mm-hmm. So they split the two groups uh, of people. One received the normal email schedule, and another group received one additional cultivation email, just pointing them to a blog post saying, here's something you might be interested in. Link to blog. One more a week. At the end of three months, uh, the people that received that extra cultivation had 80% increase in email engagement, so opens and clicks. increase in donors and a 21% increase in revenue. No more asks. Everything else stayed the same. All that organization did was just send one additional cultivation only touch point. And so whether it's one a week or one a month or whatever the, the concept is, in general, every organization probably can send more cultivation only and it should show up in engagement and donations. And it's a pretty low resource strategy to say thanks or here's an update in one Mm -hmm. extra email and it should bear out in a few different ways so those are a couple
1: yeah and what i love about what you're saying is this what it sounds like is this emphasis on cultivation which i think really speaks to a lot of the work that we do here at whole whale Um, we like to use our funnel of engagement that goes from awareness to engagement to action and then ultimately change or revenue if that's what nonprofits are looking to get. Mm-hmm. So this emphasis on cultivation, sending to a blog post or uh, leading them to a YouTube video or a class or literally anything. Yeah, totally. <laughs> really make that ask or solicitation that in an email that's sent maybe a week from now, two weeks from now, definitely within those 45 days, <laughs> a lot easier.
0: Yeah, and we see that concept play out in a few different ways where um, uh, sometimes we'll show Facebook ads that aren't asking for a donation, but we'll mm-hmm. just show like, videos and blog posts, just ads to people that we know are going to get asked in an email or direct mail. And mm-hmm. those who see the ads are more likely to respond and give more
1: <laughs> right? because
0: it's this idea of kind of priming and impression and for-profit brands do this to us all the time. Right. It's mm-hmm. so when you're driving down the road, you like, oh, go for a Starbucks right now. You don't know where that really came from, but I guarantee you Starbucks was <laughs> advertising to you in some way, you know? And so it's nonprofits. We don't have that big uh, budget. It's even large nonprofits to do that all year long and build up this huge brand. But what we do have is the ability to use kind of email and social to kind of prompts and build engagement to, to make sure when we do ask, there's a much better chance that someone will get the email, open the email, be engaged and make a donation and it's not just that email, it's all the other stuff around it that you do, right. to your point, that helps lead to that email being you know, a better performing email.
1: Right, and I love, again, that connection between ads and email because we kind of think of them as two separate things in a way. You run right. ads on one end, you run emails on the other, and then some way somehow they'll both lead <laughs> to a donation. <laughs> but what you're saying makes a lot of sense. If I see an ad for a toothbrush I've been looking for a new toothbrush lately <laughs> I see an ad on Facebook um, and I got all the way to looking through their website putting in my email getting that email seeing that ad will eventually lead me to buying that new toothbrush from that specific company
0: yeah and it, it goes back to how we actually um, measure things as well right mm-hmm. so um, one of the downsides actually of being able to measure so much on the digital world is we can get too precise with our measurements. So Mm -hmm. you could look at one individual email and say how it performed or one individual ad and say how it performed without being able to step back and actually see the bigger picture. Right? So in that toothbrush example, the ads person might go, Oh, you know, we didn't, we didn't get a conversion, you know, but then the email person or whoever, you know, says, Hey, we got, we got the conversion, but they work together. You wouldn't have got the email if you didn't get the ad. Right? So if we can step back and look more at a campaign level, or more at a multi-touchpoint or multi-channel, mm-hmm. we can more accurately see the benefit of our marketing activities. This podcast, is someone going to listen to this podcast and go buy one of our courses? Probably not. But yeah. maybe listen to this podcast, maybe they'll check us out, maybe they'll download a study. And three months from now, maybe they'll go, oh, you know what? I should really take this course. We'll never be able to track that, no matter how sophisticated we are to the fact that I was on this podcast. So that isn't to say we should just do stuff and hope it works out, but we can get too precise in how we measure things. And so that we gotta find that balance between, yes, being very specific and very uh, drilled down and very data-driven, but within context of how humans operate. We don't just exist in one channel or one month at a time. And that's how we also need to view how we evaluate fundraising and marketing is a little bit more holistic in how humans operate.
1: That's a great point. And it's interesting that you say we can get too precise. You never really think of people getting too precise with data. Those things just don't really go together.
0: <laughs> yeah. Or, or, you know, um, the expression is data doesn't lie, but it doesn't always tell the truth. Right. So a word. You, you, you can see something, but it's not exactly what's happening. It's uh-huh. you know, that's why there has that's why we can't just trust everything to robots. And we can't just trust Mm -hmm. everything to say, here's exactly what data says. We also have to contextualize and filter. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's actually a really important skill of being able to interpret and use use data. So, yeah, we need to get it, but it's not just like data alone can solve all of our problems.
1: Mm. But that's not to say... Don't look at the
0: data. <laughs> no, and, and I'd say in general, the bigger problem is we don't have enough data. We don't use data enough yeah. in nonprofits. Yeah. So like the being too precise is is a very uh, <laughs> finite point that applies to very few people.
1: Right.
0: Um, what I do see is people go from nothing to like way overboard. So they'll mm-hmm. go from like no metrics and analytics and then they'll get like a taste and all of a sudden it's like, oh, but our, you know, our open rate mm-hmm. on this one email meant this, this one time. Yeah. And you're like, well that's one instance, like step yeah. back and look at the bigger picture. Uh, so there's definitely some, uh, some challenges with data, but the biggest part is we don't use data enough for nonprofits. You're right.
1: Definitely. I think that's a great end point for our main interview portion.
0: Did I talk enough about the research? I feel like I went off on some tangents, but uh, hopefully <laughs> that was useful.
1: We are going to transition into our rapid fire round. During this part, I asked a list of questions and guests have about, 30 seconds give or take to answer these honestly is my favorite part of the podcast. So (laughs) are you ready to go?
0: I'm ready. Let's do it.
1: Awesome. What's one tech tool or website that you or your organization has started using in the last year?
0: Uh, Rev.com. It's a transcription translation service. So uh, Mm -hmm. that's actually how we produce these research studies. We'll create a PowerPoint presentation uh, an hour to two hours and we'll just kind of record it and present to ourselves and then we'll um, send it off to get translated and that forms the basis of all the copy and content. But if you want to make an ebook, if you want to create a blog post, there's so many applications to just extract audio and get it put into text and you're, you know, 80, 90% of the way there. So rev.com.
1: Cool. Are there any tech issues you're battling with?
0: (laughs) Always, constantly. you know, one of the one of the biggest challenges that we have is getting uh, kind of key analytics in a centralized place. So, mm-hmm. you know, we have an online learning platform over here. We have our uh, email program here. We have our website here, and we've got all other you know things that we're doing. And then we kind of stitch it all together with things like Zapier uh, and APIs. But at the end of the day, we all have to we still have to go to a Google spreadsheet to try to centralize mm-hmm. it. And it takes a while, and so we really struggle with how do we get the most important data that we need to look at, you know, every day, not every month, uh, in a format that we can see quickly and then make decisions based off. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's something that we even struggle with ourselves.
1: Yeah. What's coming in the next year that has you most excited?
0: Uh, More research. We have two anchor studies. One that I'm really interested in is looking at multi-channel. So Mm -hmm. uh, we will be an offline donor. So we're going to send in a check. We got to figure out how to write checks again, and then we'll be an online donor. And then we're going to track the communication we receive online, offline and on the phone, Mm -hmm. uh, text and voicemail for three months and see how those two different donors are treated and are people crossing channels. Do the Mm -hmm. messages change? there's huge value in terms of uh, getting multi-channel donors and there's not enough research or or practice out there. We don't think about saying, well, what are organizations doing or what should they do? So it's, it's a complicated one. We're having some issues (laughs) setting it up, but uh, it'll be a great one once it's produced. So I'm excited for that. We're also Mm -hmm. looking at higher ed public radio and hopefully uh, some countries in Europe. So uh, a lot of interesting research that I'm excited about.
1: Yeah. I mean, that has me excited too. That's a good answer. (laughs) Can you talk about a mistake you made earlier in your career that shapes the way you do things now?
0: Yeah, uh, maybe I'll do two quick. One, personally, I was working at a nonprofit. I was a marketing director and we were having a rough time. And I felt like I was kind of going above and beyond. We were losing staff. We were kind of you know, way behind budget and I was going above and beyond to chip in wherever I could. And Mm -hmm. just kind of like my job description and my goals at the start of the year, I kind of put them in the back and felt like I was being a team player. And when we kind of came out the other side and I had my review, I just got absolutely slaughtered for, you know, not Mm -hmm. achieving certain objectives that I thought was like, why would you want me to achieve those objectives that are unrealistic and don't help us get out of, you know, like we were going bankrupt basically. (laughs) And so the real key lesson learned is, how you have to make your work visible and known to kind mm-hmm. of supervisors and superiors. And uh, for a lot of people, it's not a natural thing. Like I don't want to go out and brag about the work that I'm doing, yeah. but you have to have a way so that people that don't know your work every day can at least see some of the value that you're creating. And I think that's really important for younger people in their careers is don't be braggadocious and that kind of stuff. Yeah. But if you're chipping in in other ways, find ways to make sure that people know that you're doing that. Um, Mm. and then if you are off your kind of main objectives and job description, have that conversation early with your boss, Mm. right? Say, Hey, I know I'm supposed to be doing these things. I really think I should be focusing on these things. What do you think? Don't just kind of go off and do them and assume that everyone sees the value. Mm. So that's something I'm really cognizant of with our team and people that report to me is saying, "Hey, let's make sure that not necessarily just me, but like my boss actually sees the work that you're doing. I think that's really important. So that was longer than 30 seconds. Sorry about that.
1: (laughs) No, that was Uh, a good one.
0: And then the, the second one, uh, uh, I was involved in a few startup digital agencies. And the first one, uh, we launched one of our biggest campaigns. And then like walking out the office, we were like, we forgot about mobile. <laughs> and so we were like, we can't forget about mobile. It was like a social media focused campaign. Yeah. So we are like, what were we doing? And so it just wasn't like on our checklist. And we were working so hard to just get it ready for launch that we didn't actually kind of think about mobile, which sounds crazy, but it can happen and wasn't part of our QA. And so yeah. ever since then to really like, yeah, but what does this look like on mobile? And like, right. <laughs> are we sure this works on mobile? Have we tested this on mobile? And having that a part of the QA or the checklist again is just it's easy to it's easy to miss, but yeah. increasingly so it's so important. So yeah. that's kind of a dumb one, but it's uh it's a pretty easy easy one <laughs> to fix too
1: yeah I mean that's that's a good lesson learned. <laughs> Do you think NGOs can successfully go out of business?
0: Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I think that success in that scenario probably looks more like a merger and they kind of mm-hmm. become a part of another organization as opposed to completely going out of business. I don't know uh, if you had a very, very precise mission or cause area and you solved it, then potentially you could go out of business. Yeah. But I think that's more rare. I think there there could be a lot of success of kind of, hey, we've ran our course. We're going to partner up with this organization or these organizations or come mm-hmm. under this umbrella to do more. And I think that probably should happen more than it does.
1: Yeah. Let's just say you had a hot tub time machine. Back to the beginning of your work, what advice would you give yourself?
0: Follow your passion a little less uh, <laughs> and and follow, or don't try to work for your passion Mm-hmm. Uh, work for great people and mm-hmm. work around great people. There's a lot of different causes and there's a lot of interesting organizations. And like I fell in love with one organization and I was lucky enough to work for them and they're great. But also I was thinking afterwards, like, you know what? I could have gone to work for them a few years later and maybe gotten more experience or worked around different people. Like mm-hmm. I was a marketing director and I wasn't ready to be a marketing director. Mm -hmm. I thought I was, but I wasn't. And so if I could have collected more experience and more knowledge Mm -hmm. from working in and amongst other people, you can always find your way and you'd be surprised what you're passionate about. But there is no substitute to working in and around great people, especially if you Mm -hmm. learn on the fly like I do. So Mm -hmm. I would prioritize kind of like, yeah, the marketing director job can wait five years. I'm going to learn a lot more from and with people that I'm around.
1: What's something you think you or your organization should stop doing?
0: Uh, Me stop getting distracted from like email and small stuff. It's uh, I just get in these modes. I'm just cranking out work and it's like oh this huge project I was supposed to do I didn't do that's a big problem for me. And then I think organizationally we can be a little quick to dismiss uh, new ideas that maybe don't have tons of evidence. Right? So we talk about innovation and optimization, and yeah. kind of optimization is testing what we know works, and innovation is trying to find the breakthrough idea and those two should work together, and sometimes we maybe lean too much towards optimization and dismiss potential of new ideas that should be tested, but we just say, mm-hmm. "Ah, it didn't work, or eh, I don't think it will work, and we don't actually you know test it ourselves. That's something that we have to to do better at
1: yeah it's it's a scary world. <laughs> <laughs> If you had a Harry Potter one for your industry, what would it do? Uh,
0: change the scarcity mindset to a growth mindset. I think a lot of the problems that we have in the nonprofit space have, are rooted in this idea of, you know, fearful of overhead and spending and cost to raise a dollar and all these metrics that I think are actually garbage and have no place. <laughs> Um, It's shaped the way that we think and how we analyze instead of having a growth mindset, a net revenue mindset. Mm -hmm. So that's the thing I so wish uh, we could change because I think it's cost us dearly.
1: What's your favorite question to ask an organization or board member?
0: Um, I mean, this maybe sounds weird, but like, how much money did you raise? I think it's interesting if you ask a board member that, uh, but even asking organizations, not because it's like, oh, how much money did you raise? But I think how someone answers that is kind of interesting. And you can got kind of get a flavor of kind of what they're, how they go about fundraising, what they think about fundraising. But then also just like, what have you been learning lately? And so like keeping that open could be a book, could be a blog, could be a test. I think that's a really interesting question. It's a great interview question too, um, yeah. to just see like, You know, are you really interested and curious and a learner or not? Uh, Because people and organizations that are are going to succeed over the long term. If you don't learn and aren't curious, then you're probably going to struggle in the long term.
1: How'd you get started in the social impact space?
0: A much longer story, but the short answer is uh, the tsunami in Southeast Asia in 2004. I was an elementary education major in college and that happened and uh, our campus did like a of a prayer vigil kind of thing and I didn't really want to be there I kind of like was going there because a girl was gonna be there and I like slunk in the back row and uh, it was you know like this aha moment sitting at the back of this chapel seeing all these images and pictures of NGOs responding to this absolutely devastating crisis and I was like that's that's what I'm gonna do so I changed my major that week and started studying nonprofit management
1: wow that's a good story (laughs) What's a piece of advice your parents gave you that you did or didn't follow?
0: Uh, my parents are awesome. They've given me tons of great advice. But the one that that stands out is um, your job is both the most important thing in the world and it's just a job. Mm. And uh, I think that applies to sports. i played a lot of sports and my dad would say, hey, this game is the most important thing. And then it's also just a game. And I think that if we can balance those things well, I think it's great right? Mm-hmm. So care so much about your job and be so committed and do your absolute best work, but also realize it's just a job. You have a life and a family and you can't, it can't be everything. So you know, it's both the most important thing in the world and it's just a, you know, just a job.
1: Yeah. Tough advice for a kid.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I was like four, you know, cleaning my bedroom and he said that.
1: No. Um, last question. This is probably my favorite question. What advice would you give college grads looking to enter the social impact sector? This
0: is how do you answer this in 30 seconds? You know, it's funny (laughs) when I first got this, my first answer was like, don't or uh, think really hard. Mm -hmm. Um, But then I was like, no, that's not the right answer. We need so many more good, great people to enter this space. So I think the thing I would say is, um, why do you want to join the social impact sector? Uh, increasingly so you can do unbelievable work and it doesn't have to be a nonprofit or it doesn't even need to be social impact focused. I think business has massive power and potential to do good and harm in the world. And -hmm. so to think that we do good over here and kind of just go to work over here. I don't think we think that anymore, but that's just not true. So there's huge amount of um, impact we can have in politics and business, whatever it might be. But the bigger thing is you will not get complete fulfillment out of your job any job. And I think a lot of people go into nonprofits, myself included, out of passion, after this is what I'm about, this is my fulfillment. And you can get some of that, but no matter what cause or what job, social impact or not, it will not fulfill all parts of your life. And so you have to find ways to find meaning and purpose and value outside of your job, whether you're working for a bank or a nonprofit.
1: Yeah. As a college grad, I can tell you that's part of your quarter life crisis. <laughs>
0: Big time. No, big time. Again, that's part of my story too. Like I was working for this organization that I loved in a great role and Mm. being like, huh, this actually isn't as great as I thought it was. You know, (laughs) like if you could have asked me, what do you want to be doing when you're 26 or 27? Like this is probably what I would have answered. And then being there just like, oh yeah, like this isn't nearly what I thought it was. Yeah. And so if I kind of would have been more attuned to that, again, chasing experiences, who do you work with, not yeah. wanting a title necessarily and caring about the long-term, all of these things, but it's hard to know that when you're, you know, you're 23, 24, yeah. whatever it might be. So anyways, hopefully someone listening kind of feeds that <laughs> advice a little bit.
1: Awesome. Well, that concludes our rapid fire round and also the podcast episode. Thanks again for being so much on the episode. Where can people find you?
0: So uh, I'm Brady Josephson. So at Brady Josephson, uh, LinkedIn. I love LinkedIn right now. I'm on a big mm-hmm. LinkedIn kick. Uh, I'm enjoying the conversations and discussions there. So you can find me on the socials there. Otherwise, all of our research, our training, our courses, our work, you can go to nextafter.com or nextafter.com institute. That's where you'll find all of our research and resources.
1: Especially the one about email cultivation. Oh,
0: yeah. Good point. That's at cultivatingdonors.com. Yep. And uh, I should mention too, we have a podcast called The Generosity Freak Show. So you can just, while you're listening to this, you're in some app, just search for the Generosity Freak Show and you can listen over there too.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much, Brady.
0: Thank you so much for having me. Enjoyed it. This has been Using the Whole Whale. For more resources on today's show, please visit wholewhale.com slash podcast and consider following us on Twitter at Whole Whale. And thanks for joining us.